Thanks for following along the second season of Crime Beat. And thanks so much to the listeners who have supported our sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. I've seen shows there several times, and it's a great night out. In January, they will have a new play, the very dark comedy Arsenic and Old Lace. There will be more details and a discount code later in this episode. So thank you to the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. Crime Beat listeners who love true crime podcasts should check out Murderous Miners. Here's a little intro from Murderous Miners host Simone Matthews, who's known on social media as War Baby. Murderous Miners brings true tales of children who have killed. Premeditated murders, accidental killings and deaths, from toddlers to 18-year-old killers, no one is too young to take a life. Join me, War Baby, as I try to tell these stories of the young who've killed, the lives they took, and even the ones who've been left behind. Why do children kill? What do we do with young killers? And do they kill again? And here's Crime Beat. Some of the descriptions, details, and language in this podcast may not be suitable for all audiences. An afternoon encounter in the winter of 1996 changed Aaron Wyatt's life forever in the strangest way. He was a patrol officer then, not even two years on the job. He was full of spit and vinegar, an aggressive cop making a difference on the streets of Placentia. There were drugs, there were gangs. On that particular afternoon, the one that changed his life, Darren answered a call about drug activity in Kramer Park. When he got there, he found the caller had been correct. He rolled up on a drug dealer. He had him dead to rights. When you nail a drug dealer, and the drug dealer knows he's been nailed, what happened next is usually a fair amount of street negotiation. So this, this guy's there, and he's, oh, don't arrest me, don't arrest me, I'll tell you anything you want to know, you know, what do you want to know, and... Let me give you a few more details about the scene. It's a cool afternoon, winter, 1996. Darren Wyatt is face-to-face with a drug dealer. Standing next to him is another patrol officer, Dave Douglas. Standing next to Douglas is an explorer, a young woman, kind of like a junior cop in training. In that moment, in front of the pleading drug dealer, Darren remembered some training he received during what he called dope class. Your goal, when you're dealing with one of these street-level guys, is to get them to cough up information. You've got to ask them what they know, but you want to ask it in the right way. When you're trying to do something like that, always start with the biggest thing first. Don't start small because they're going to give you just what what you're asking for, so start big. Darren Wyatt asked the biggest question he could think of. I just flippantly said, well, tell me who killed Kathy Torres. The drug dealer didn't know the answer. But that's when Dave Douglas, the other police officer, the one standing next to Darren, kicked him in the shoe. You know the kind of kick it was. Hard. But like he was hoping nobody would see. Dave Douglas is standing next to me. kind of kicks me. And uh, I look at him and he goes like this. And I look over and the name tag on the Explorer is D. Torres. Uh, and it's Kathy's sister, Debbie. Darren realized immediately what he had done. He had never met Debbie Torres or anyone in the Torres family. Debbie didn't say anything. But it stuck with me because I said it 
flippantly. Yeah. Uh, but and, to her, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened. And you in felt her bad. Life. I did. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter with the Southern California News Group. In 1994, Kathy Torres, a 20-year-old student at Cal State Fullerton, never came home after working the night shift in the photo department at Savon. In this podcast, I'm going to look at just how cold a case can get. I'm going to tell you about Kathy's mother, Mary Bennett, her family, police officer Darren Wyatt, and their extraordinary and frustrating two-plus decade pursuit of justice. This is Crime Beat, Season 2, Episode 7, Keeping the Case Alive. Debbie Torres will never forget that moment. He asked him, do you know who killed Kathy Torres? And I didn't see it at the time, but Darren told me later, I guess Dave was kicking his foot, like, don't say that, because <laughs> she's standing and, right and next to me. And you heard I it. heard the question, yeah. What did you think? Did you think it was well, inappropriate? Because he felt horrible. Like, right. he still talks about it. He felt horrible, like, oh, I, I said the wrong thing. It was a, a right. insert your foot right. in mouth, you know? Right. Did uh, you feel that way? Um, I think it took me by surprise when I heard him say that. Um, but I, I didn't, I don't think it hurt me tremendously. Um, I think by then I already had very thick skin. I had heard lots of things in the community. So I, it didn't, it didn't bother me, you know, that somebody would be asking about her. Um, but it did take me by surprise at that particular moment. Um, but then, you know, as time went on, I realized, you know, he genuinely wanted to know what had happened. I mean, I realized very soon after that, that he genuinely wanted to know who had killed Kathy Torres. And I thought, hey, that's fantastic. We want to know the same thing. What do you do when you're in the family of the murder victim? I'll tell you what the Torres family did. Mary Bennett had one goal, to keep Kathy's case alive any way they could. She started to go to meetings where her voice could be heard. Parents of murdered children crime survivors, she joined a group called MOVE, Memory of Victims Everywhere. That's where Mary met Colleen Campbell. Colleen's son Scott was murdered in 1982 by a former family friend. A jury found that Lawrence Rayburn Cowell had thrown Scott out of a Cessna airplane. Colleen became the loudest of victims' rights advocates. She wrote the Crime Victims' Creed. We shall smile for the golden love we had and not cry for the love we have lost. We shall not betray the beauty of that love by spreading sorrow. For the living or dead, our love remains constant. We shall not cry because we can no longer touch you. We will smile because we can still love you. We will move forward to preserve the cherished love of others. Working with Colleen, Mary could reach higher places as high as the governor of California. On November 3rd, 1994, Colleen and Mary met with Pete Wilson and gave him a proclamation thanking him for being a true and loyal friend to crime victims. I remember with her, I was able to go and meet with uh, uh, Pete Wilson at the time. He was the governor. You met with the governor? Oh, yes, because she was, uh, it was in an event that she was holding and he was going to be there. What did you say? Uh, well, you tell them who your uh, Kathy's name and what you were trying. It was an unsolved at the time, mm-hmm. and, uh, and of course, you know they tell you, you know, well that they're trying to do everything they can for victims. And why did you think it was important that everyone know her name? Because she was a person. Right. She was a person, and 
wrote letters and, and you you try to get it people had to know her that she wasn't just a nobody she was my she was my baby and she and people had to know and and so you do what you can you know and and even now you uh, in fact uh, the other day I, I thank Colleen Campbell for telling me she was the one that told me early on in 94 she told me Mary because don't don't you ever let anybody tell you that there's nothing they can do. You be the squeaky wheel. I won't, I won't use the descriptive words that she used. And I learned and she goes, don't you be afraid. She goes, I went to these bars and that bar and trying to get to the, to the bottom of who had murdered. So she, she told me and, and, uh, and, and I, 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 I understood what she was saying and and uh, she was a mentor of yours. Yes. And, and like I said, I'm forever grateful to her. As much as Mary Bennett wanted to keep her daughter's name alive, the community was right there with her. There was a Kathy Torres Memorial Scholarship Fund established at Cal State Fullerton. The Kathy Torres Learning Center opened in Placentia and is still open today. In Kramer Park, which was across Chapman Avenue from the Torres House, the Placentia City Council and a local Girl Scout troop planted a tree in Kathy's honor. In later years, that tree would become the focal point for rallies. One time, Kathy's friends each made 74 white clay hearts and hung them in the tree. One for every stab wound. I stood under that tree recently and I noticed something white on a branch. A shriveled heart hanging from a faded ribbon. I took it off the branch and that heart... Just a little thing, no bigger than a quarter, is now hanging on the corner of my computer at the Southern California News Group office in Anaheim. I look at it every day as I make this podcast. There's one more note I want to tell you about that tree. I called Mary when I was out there. This was in 2018, 24 years after her daughter died, 24 years after that tree had been planted. She didn't mention the rallies or the honors or the hearts. Here's what she told me. I wish I had taped that conversation, but I didn't. Anyway, she said the best thing about that tree is that Sam Lopez, from his house across the street, could see it every day. There's another note that illustrates Mary's tenacity. It has to do with Kathy's car. The car with Kathy's body inside the trunk, was transported to Santa Ana, where it was tested for evidence. The car was just sitting in Santa Ana, in police custody. It had already been dusted and scanned for fingerprints and DNA, so Mary asked for it back. The car was released from police custody, driven to her house, and parked in the driveway. Mary's initial thought was that the presence of that car across the street from the Lopez compound would be a constant reminder to Sam what he had done. She had gained a tiny edge in the battle against Sam Lopez. Her daughter Tina, however, didn't see it that way. She said the car sitting in the driveway was creepy. So Mary finally agreed to sell it. The car was cleaned up and sold in another state. That car is one of the few areas where Mary Bennett and Darren Wyatt disagree. Yeah, I never would have given the car back. That right. car is evidence, and, and we don't know what we might need from it as the case progresses. I never would have released that car until after there was a conviction. Darren didn't agree that the car sitting in the Torres driveway would rattle Sam Lopez at all. 
The car, Darren said, might remind him that the police weren't getting anywhere. In 1994 and 1995, Sam had other things on his mind. In July of 95, he married Tina Montalongo. Tina moved into the little blue house in the compound bordered by Walnut Street and Chapman Avenue. She drew the ire of Mary Bennett. The next voice you hear belongs to Tina Montalongo. So she stood in her front yard, which she did many times, and she could see us, and we could see her. So, what was that like? It was annoying, but I'm like I said, I'm stubborn. I don't. I wouldn't let stuff like that affect me.、Um, there was one time she did follow me for a while. So I was getting. I mean, I was. That pissed me off because, like she, we both left for work at the same time or something, and that hadn't. She had never. She like followed me basically all the way to work. I don't know if she was trying to intimidate me or what she was trying to do, but she had done that, and I was. I would. I didn't go to work because I didn't want her to know where I worked. Sam and Tina had a daughter born in April of 1996. Tina asked me not to use the daughter's name in this podcast. It was not, Tina said, easy to raise a child whose father was a murder suspect. But I did tell Sam that we were going to have to move eventually when she got older because I didn't want her to be around all that. Right.、Um, you know, people would, you know, pass by and yell obscene stuff. Or、um, I remember one time we were having a barbecue and somebody threw something. You know. At us as they were driving by,、um, so I mean, and that was a, just a one-time incident. But I didn't want her to be older and like playing outside and like you know something like that happen.、Um, and because Placentia's small, you know, I I didn't want her. I didn't want to raise her there. Mary Bennett wasn't the only person watching the Lopez family closely. Darren Wyatt made it his top priority. I need to slip in another note here. Something else happened in November of 1995. On November 26th, Albert Rangel died. He had been Kathy's boyfriend, who'd been found hanging in a warehouse the week before she disappeared. Albert was in a persistent vegetative state for almost 22 months. Here's Albert's mother, Lori Fitzgerald. He died, November twenty-six, my birthday, in nineteen ninety-five. I would go and I would t- I would、uh, read to him. I'd lay in his bed and I'd read to him.、Um, I'd take him outside with the rain so he could hear the rain. He saw movies.、Um, well, were, not, his, were his eyes open? His eyes were, yeah, they were open, but they would go like this. So his eyes would move around. Yeah, his eyes would move around. His eyes would. Now Greg and I did get a second opinion. We went to uh, to uh, another doctor to get a second opinion, and he told us that I forget what the Glasgow scale was, but he said that he's he wasn't there. Lori Fitzgerald still sleeps with the blanket from Albert's hospital bed. Here's the special offer from the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts: Buy one ticket to Arsenic and Old Lace, get one free. Use the promo code Antbogo, 
A-U-N-T-B-O-G-O. Enter the code before selecting your seats. Valid on all performances of Arsenic and Old Lace. Offer good on full price tickets only. Tickets are available at LaMiradaTheater.com. Don't miss Broadway's classic killer comedy, Arsenic and Old Lace. Combining murder and mayhem with zany humor, Arsenic and Old Lace is an uproaring comedy that gives hospitality a bad name. Opens January 24th through February 16th. Tickets at LaMiradaTheater.com. In January of 1997, Darren Wyatt was promoted to homicide detective. Three months later, in April of 1997, the Orange County Sheriff's Department, in tandem with the Orange County Crime Lab, announced with great fanfare they would put extra resources into unsolved cases. They made their announcement on the television news. The next day, Darren Wyatt's phone rang. I get a call from a lady uh, who introduces herself as Mary Bennett uh, and uh, says that she's Kathy's mother and said that she had just seen a news broadcast uh, from the Orange County Sheriff's Department and the Orange County Crime Lab where they're announcing uh, this grant-funded program called CLUE, which stood for the Countywide Law Enforcement Unsolved Element. Okay. Uh, and they talk about how this grant is going to fund forensic testing and investigation on unsolved cases, and they mentioned Kathy Torres' case. On TV? Apparently. I never saw it. So Mary calls me and says, hey, if they're going to publicize their grant using my daughter's case, then I sure as heck want to make sure that my daughter's case gets worked. In April of 1997, the Kathy Torres case was dead. There were no new leads. Well, the case had become cold. Uh, They uh, had done what they thought was everything that they could do. Uh, up to that point and uh, had presented the information they had to the district attorney's office uh, and the DA's office told them no. DA's office told them that there was no case to file at the time. As Wyatt read the Torres case file for the first time, he saw all the other stuff that was going on. So it was a high profile case all over the media everywhere. So people came out of the woodwork with information, including psychics. Okay. Uh, hey, uh, it, it happened by the river, and the guy, the suspect, has an M tattooed on his the web of his finger, and just all this stuff. But are you when, making that up, or that, is that literally what somebody's told? It's you? literally what came in a letter from a psychic, okay. uh, and then somebody else would call and say, "Hey, I saw that girl at Carl's Jr. with this transient-looking guy, and he had a knife." You know, so those kinds of things would come out, and the the danger in those is that every single one of those leads is creating a defense for a suspect. If you don't go in and eliminate all of those leads... Why didn't you eliminate them? Exactly. Because that's the real killer. Right. After he finished reading the case file, Darren Wyatt began to re-examine the evidence. And then he noticed there was some blood swatches and fingerprints collected in 1994 that had never been sent to the lab. So he put that old evidence together and sent a package to Tanya Vermeulen, at the crime lab. Two weeks later, so we're talking May 1997, the crime lab called back. They got a hit on a fingerprint. And it wasn't Sam Lopez. I'm going to get to the name of the person who left that fingerprint in just a minute. The fingerprint came from the trunk of Kathy's car. It was a left index finger on the edge of the trunk hood in a spot you might put your hand to close the trunk. 
Then Darren got another call from the lab. Another hit. This time, they found a man's DNA mixed with Kathy's blood. The mixture appeared on the left rear quarter panel on the outside of Kathy's car. The DNA and the fingerprint were the same person. Again, not Sam Lopez. Now, DNA is still fairly new right. in investigations at that point. This happened a few months before OJ. Correct. So they've collected this. They've swapped it. Tanya Vermeulen, who is the, the um, criminalist from the Orange County Crime Lab, processes all this, right? So we now have this. The crime lab's like, okay, when are you going to go make the arrest? Now, the, right. the numbers are 1 in 36,000. What he means is that this DNA was accurate enough to pick one suspect out of a sold-out 36,000-seat stadium. In today's standards, those sound like horrible numbers, right? Right. But in 1997 standards, those are decent Okay. Right? Those are decent numbers. He convinced his chief to assign him to the Clue Unit, where he could work on the Kathy Torres case full-time for six months. He worked with investigator Brian Heaney. Brian doesn't have a lot of homicide experience. Obviously, the time, I, I, right, and yeah. obviously I didn't have a lot of homicide experience at the time. Uh, but we're not stupid. But uh, you're paired up. And we're paired up and we're hard workers. Right. So what we do is we basically catalog every single piece of evidence in the case, uh, every police reports that's been written, every witness that's been interviewed. We go through and we take a look at all of this and we then reinvestigate everything from start to finish. We re-interview all the witnesses. We talk to everybody. Another thing they did was to ask Lou Rosenblum if they could, because he wouldn't take the case, ask another DA to look at their evidence. Lou granted that request. So Darren and Brian took their case to homicide DA Carolyn Kirkwood. They were itching to make an arrest. We go to Carolyn, and the first thing she says to Brian and I is, I don't know you guys. Um, I don't know what your experience level is, so I have no relationship with you. Um, so I, I just can't go off of what you say. If you were somebody like Larry Montgomery. I know Larry Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, then maybe. Well, that's not a great thing to tell you right off the jump. Right. Exactly. So we go out, and, and we present the DA to the DNA to her, we talk to her, and she just is, again, even DAs, this DNA is new to them. Kirkwood couldn't get over the point that a suspect could have spit on the car, and then Kathy happened to bleed in the same spot. And that's how his DNA got mixed with her blood. Darren will never forget the words Kirkwood said to him. You need more. I, I'm not, I can't file on this. Earlier, Kirkwood had mentioned Larry Montgomery. He's a homicide investigator with a sterling reputation. In 1997, he wasn't even involved in the Kathy Torres case. That would come much later. As the police in the DA's office were arguing about what to do with Sam Lopez, Sam Lopez's life started falling apart. Tina Montalongo had said she fell in love with Sam because he was so nice and kind, and she could never envision him hurting anyone. Their marriage, however, didn't last. In 1997, Tina and Sam were arguing because Sam had made what she called an irresponsible decision. So Sam decided he quit. He it was time for him to quit his job, and you know he just showed up home from work one day and was like, "I quit. My my brother quit his quit. So and he quit. And okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, a little warning would have been nice, but." Uh, it was hard 
for him to find another job, and we just started arguing. When she decided to leave, Tina anticipated there might be a problem with Sam allowing her and her daughter just to walk away. So she did something she immediately regretted. She has always said that Sam was so nice he would never hurt anyone. I called the cops. And I was so mad that they showed up so quickly because, and then they basically tormented him the whole time after I left. Um, and I know had it been just, you know, anyone else that didn't have all these issues with this, with them, it, it wouldn't happen that way. And I felt bad. You know, it was stupid of me to do. It's not like he was beating me or anything like that. There was nothing like that going on. I just wanted to leave and take my kid with me. Sam couldn't have been happy in October of 1997 when he heard that Darren Wyatt called his cousin, Javier Lopez, in for questioning. Do you remember 1997? By the end of that year, the world was still in shock over the death of Princess Diana. The top song in America was Candle in the Wind, the version Elton John did for Princess Di. The top horror movie was I Know What You Did Last Summer. The Florida Marlins had just beaten the Cleveland Indians to win the World Series. It was a Tuesday night, October 28th, when Javier Lopez walked into the Placentia Police Department. He didn't know that he was now the focus of the Kathy Torres murder case. He didn't know that it was his fingerprint and DNA the crime lab had discovered on Kathy's car. I've listened to the tape from that interview with Javier. It's so mangled and tough to understand that I won't play it here. Here's the important context. Until that point, Javier had been regarded only as an alibi witness for Sam Lopez. Remember Sam's timeline for the night Kathy disappeared? He'd been helping some friends move, then he went to his girlfriend's store, then he picked up and dropped off his cousin, then he went to the Brea Mall, but it was closed? Javier was the cousin. Javier was the same age as Sam. He had graduated from Valencia High School in 1990. Javier was a nerdy kid. Quiet, soft-spoken, meek, a math whiz. In his early 20s, he worked as a math tutor at Fullerton College. When Kathy was murdered, Javier was living with his parents in Anaheim Hills. By 1997, he had moved in with Sam, Tina, and their newborn daughter. He and Sam were as tight as cousins could be. From the outset, Wyatt and Heaney had a goal, to show that Javier would have no reason to come in contact with Kathy's car. Because if he had no contact with her car, how could he explain his DNA ending up there? They asked him if she had ever given him a ride, if he had ever helped her change a tire, or if he had ever helped her clean her car. They wanted to show that Javier had never been near enough to spit on her car or sweat on the car. That October 28th interview went on for hours. Javier was so guarded, he wouldn't give a straight answer. When they asked him what he thought happened to Kathy, he had trouble coming up with any theory about how she died. When they started to ask him how his DNA could possibly end up in Kathy's car, Javier said he had loaned his clothes to Sam and Sam could have worn them while he was riding in the car. And then we interview Javier for about five hours. Okay. Uh, and it's a very interesting conversation uh, because Javier had always uh, been approached as if he was just lying to cover for his cousin. Right. Um, 
So the, the first couple hours of this interview is us just trying to, um, well, let him believe that he's just possibly a witness and we need his, his help. Right. But through that, we kind of establish his relationship with Kathy, which was non-existent. Uh, we eliminate him from having access to her car. Five hours, and ultimately he gets to the point where he puts his fist in front of his mouth like that to prevent himself from talking, and he won't say, so the question is like, Javier, do you know who killed Kathy Torres? I don't know who did. Did you kill Kathy Torres? I don't know who did. Javier, did you kill Kathy Torres? I don't know who did. Never said no. Right. I don't know who did. Okay. Javier, you can't even say that you didn't, that you didn't kill Kathy Torres. I didn't do what you say I did. He could never say those words, and then right. then the fist goes in. So right. at the end of five hours, we've got nowhere. I get done, and my captain, Russ Rice, who ultimately ended up being the chief of police at Placentia, <clears throat> he's sitting there, he goes, what are you gonna do? I said, I'm gonna book him. I, I've got no option. I mean, the guy, we've got physical evidence, and his, his story, he does not, never says he didn't kill her. On October 28th, 1997, Darren Wyatt arrested Javier Lopez for murder. Sam Lopez, who was questioned the same night, was released. So Sam was walking out of the police department while Javier was being booked. Imagine being Javier, who thought he was just an alibi witness. What a surreal change of events. Remember, Deputy DA Carolyn Kirkwood told Darren she would not file charges in the Kathy Torres case. It didn't matter to her that Javier's DNA was on the car. In Kirkwood's mind, that wasn't strong enough evidence. Darren had a different idea. Wyatt hoped the arrest would prompt Javier to tell the truth. It was a huge gamble. He's gonna roll. He's not gonna. He's not gonna go down for his cousin if he didn't do it. Right. Right. <clears throat> uh, Carolyn Kirkwood goes absolutely apeshit because you did something that she didn't approve. Yeah, and she says, "I told you not to make an arrest." That's great. You could tell me that all day long. But the law says if I have probable cause to make an arrest, I can make an arrest. So that's what we did. Right? So what do they do? They don't file. So two days later, he gets out. So our tactical move is now gone. The news hit Mary Bennett and her family like a hammer. First, the guy they arrested for Kathy's murder wasn't Sam Lopez. And second... The district attorney, again, refused to file charges against the guy they did arrest, Javier Lopez. And um, it was it was upsetting. It was a shock in a way because we, we didn't know any any involvement of Javier's in it. So, so at that point, when he got arrested, that's a surprise. That came as a surprise. Because they found the fingerprint, they found the DNA. You didn't know any of that. No. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that was a surprise. And then, of course, it was a shock when, when uh, uh, the DA didn't uh, file. Right. But then that doesn't mean that you stop. Who was Javier Lopez? The Torres family had known him for years. He was the kind of guy you didn't notice. He was always hanging around with Sam in the background. Kathy's brother, Marty, couldn't believe what he was hearing. I mean, I remember him seeing him at college. I think he was a tutor there at college. And he was just always nervous, always like a very nervous... Did he ever tutor you? Um, 
I don't remember. I can't say yes or no. So he's a tutor at Fullerton College while after Kathy. Yeah, after the fact. After Kathy was murdered. And I want to say he may even gave me a ride home once or twice. The arrest and release of Javier Lopez had a dramatic effect on Debbie Torres, Kathy's little sister. Remember, Debbie had become a police explorer. If you would have met her in high school, she would have told you that she was inspired by her sister's death to become a cop. Uh, I think at that point I realized, okay, I don't want to do... Uh, initially, I thought this is what I want to do right out of um, high school. I'm going to, you know... Be a detective. Yeah, I want to be going to the academy. I want to do this. I want to... I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then somehow along the way, I re- I think a lot of it had to do with... Um, when I started to learn a little bit more about the justice system, like when that arrest didn't happen, that was early in my uh, senior year. And then that's when I when realized the, when the, when when the, the DA declined yeah. to file. Yeah. And that's when I was like, what, what do you mean? Uh, like, this, you know, they like, caught him. In my mind, yeah, because I guess I had missed that second part of the justice system. You know, I was very young, but in my mind, I thought when police make arrests, you start trial like right. soon after. And I just thought that's what happens. You know, you go to jail and then you get a chance to go to court, and it should just happen that way. I didn't realize that there was, you know, um, you know, this discretion or whatever. Yeah. So I, it, it kind of um, changed my course in that respect. Debbie Torres was so floored that the DA had not filed charges in her sister's case that she decided to stop pursuing a police career and go to law school. Suddenly, she wanted to help fix the legal system from the inside, and obviously, the legal system needed help. I need to tell you about one last thing during this period. On December 19, 1997, a little girl was born. Her name was Lindsay. Her father was Darren Wyatt. He gets emotional when he talks about the first time he talked to Mary Bennett about his own daughter. In December of 1997, my first daughter was born. Well, my, my only daughter, but my first kid was born. Uh, and I remember going to Mary very shortly after that. And I know. That was the first, is having that uh, realization of having that love for a child. In, the only thing I can do is I can promise you that I'll do everything in my power. I can't promise you that I'll solve it, but I promise you I'll do everything that I can to try. Um, and it was just that connection of, of now having a kid uh, that was um, crucially important. By the time Lindsay Wyatt grew up and became an adult, justice still had not been served in this case. Next time on Mom vs. Murderer cold as ice. If you think you know what really happened to Kathy Torres at this point in the story, you're probably wrong. The district attorney's office certainly didn't think they could win a conviction, so the case was in jeopardy of fading away. Crime Beat Season 2 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Audio editing, mixing, and music by Kevin Sablon. Field recording and videos by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal. The best way you can support this podcast 
is to give us high ratings, write great reviews, and tell your friends to check out our work. Also, you can listen to Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. That story was the inspiration behind the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen, starring Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Thanks for listening. Here's more information on the play Arsenic and Old Lace at the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. The play is scheduled to run from January 24th through February 16th. Use the promo code ANTBOGO, A-U-N-T-B-O-G-O, for a discount on tickets at lamradatheater.com.